0: Okay, uh, Torsten, who is in Germany, is back with us again, and he has a question about reducing entropy. Torsten,
1: yes, thank you. Um, my question concerns reducing entropy, and uh, it uh, refers to the endpoint. So it uh, really is, is subdivided in uh, three sub questions, and I pr- try with the first one now. When a consciousness more and more reduces its entropy what is the lowest level of entropy that can be attained? Respectively, what is the final disposition of reducing entropy?
2: How low can you go in entropy? Well, I think entropy is very much like absolute zero or the speed of light. You know, you can only go so far. You're not going to probably get to zero entropy. It probably doesn't <laughs> exist. You just can, can uh, asymptotically approach that perhaps, but I don't think you'll ever get there. I believe that's a that's a mark that like getting to absolute zero in temperature. You can never get there, but you can get closer and closer and closer. But it's not a point that you'll ever be able to get to because eventually you'll be at you just your your process of getting there will add enough heat to keep you from getting there. So it's it's that sort of thing. Um, so, but we can obviously make a lot of you know a lot of progress we are so in the early stages of our evolution we have so much further to go in becoming love than where we are right now it is such a long path that we have it's why it's hard to imagine that that can take place in you know like just a decade or maybe even two we've got a long long way to go first hopefully we would all get acting better and then, uh, slowly, we would get that into our being level to actually be better. But um, it's a long path. So I don't think we'll ever get to the point that there is an endpoint, like we're done. Again, it's not a fixed system. There's not just n individuated units of consciousness. And as they all grow up, then we're done. There's always new things coming in at the bottom. There's always new entities joining us in this particular virtual reality from other virtual realities. There's always the, uh, you know, the dog and the cat and the horse and the monkey that have gotten to the point where they're ready to take a shot at being human in their development of consciousness. So you always have new things bubbling up into the, into the system that uh, put new consciousnesses, as you might say, in the bottom of, of the evolutionary uh, uh, elevator and have to learn and grow up in their, in their own ways. As uh, population expands, there's always new IUOCs that are that are uh, involved, and uh, yeah. So anyhow, I don't think we're going to find an endpoint. I think we just keep on keeping on, and partly the reason that is 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 what the point is here. And as we evolve, it's about other. It's about what can we contribute. So it's not about us so if it were just about us we'd say well i'm going to get to the end point and then i'm done well you're not done and really until everybody else is done too and as i've been saying everybody else isn't going to be done because there's always new coming in at the bottom so there's always something to do there's always some way to help there's always some way to teach or be useful so i don't know that we're ever going to get done i can't imagine a done state for or consciousness, I think it just, all evolution tends to be open-ended. You know, when are we gonna be done evolving physically? Well, never. You know, you're just always changing. You know, we look at what human body's gonna look like a hundred thousand years from now, it may not look so much like it does now. You know, we may have evolved different kinds of of um, ways. Then, uh, we may still look similar, but we may have just changed some. It's the same with other critters. Evolution's open-ended. It just keeps changing based on what you are now and how that might change to give some advantage in the future. And I don't know that we'll ever get a point to where there is no way to change to give advantage to the future. I suspect there'll always be some way to improve.
1: Okay. um, May I ask number two now? That is, if... uh, consciousnesses uh, are quite close uh, to some kind of endpoint of uh, lowering entropy, do they still differ from each other or do they become more and more similar?
2: Well, in ways they become more similar because they begin to have similar perspectives and similar understandings. But in other ways they're very unique because each individuated unit of consciousness is a being based on all of its history, all of its past history, everything that it's experienced. And all of us have a different you know, history. We're all different. We've all had different experiences. And even if we get to the, to the same point, we've gotten there by different paths. So I would say our individuality, we as individuals, will remain because that's our history. That's all the choices we've ever made from the first time we, uh, you know, went out to this uh, virtual reality trainer, you know, up until the last time that we need to go here. Our history is unique to us. Our path is unique to us. Therefore, the way we see things, the way we interpret the data and the way we interact is going to be unique to us. So we, as individuated units of consciousness, I think will always be uh, uniquely individual, so it 's always us you 're not going to lose that we're not going to all kind of melt together into one blob. We will begin to see things the same way. We will begin to have similar perspectives and similar attitudes and similar understandings that will begin to merge but our 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 viewpoint the way we the way we uh, process the data. That we get the way we react and interact is going to be us uniquely, and I think we'll still be uh, individual in in uh, you know our, our fundamental being, who we are, will be separate. And I think that's I don't see that that would go away. Now maybe if we you know had thousands and thousands of lifetimes that were all homogeneous. Maybe eventually our experiences would all get to to be similar. You know, you kind of discount the older experiences and become more a part of the new experiences, and maybe something like that could eventually happen. But somehow I don't really see that as as something that's close enough to to be concerned about or think about. I'm thinking that we are going to be unique individuals for a very long, long time. If we ever do get to the point that we're not, then we won't miss it because we will have outgrown those individualities, but right now they are us. Those individualities make us who we are. And uh, it's good because all of us have room to grow and all the diversity of, of uh, opinion and the diversity of the way we approach things is actually a very valuable part of our learning. Homogeneity kind of isn't a really a great learning environment. Diversity is a great learning environment. So it could be if we get to the point where there's more homogeneity, we will start to de-evolve back to the point where there's more diversity so that we can continue to evolve again. <laughs> you know, maybe it will get in some kind of a cycle like that. You know, It's a natural system. It's really hard to say. Uh, I suspect there is, there is no end to that though.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Perhaps my third question is already has already been answered, it's about if uh, such advanced consciousnesses could merge with each other, thus forming a larger collective consciousness. Um, what is your idea about that? I'm asking this because uh, also uh, Ingeborg uh, asked about Michael's teachings. And Michael was channeled, amongst other entities, um, that they are merged uh souls uh, a whole soul family and uh, they still have their individuality but they merged and are now are now a a larger collective consciousness
2: well i suppose that's possible if you wanted to do that Uh, you know in a lot of ways we have collective consciousness here where we merge you know we merge at the cultural level where we have a cultural collective consciousness um we merge at the species level we merge uh even at the uh sometimes at the family level and at the work level where we take on characteristics of the people that we work with or the people in our family uh people in our culture and we tend to think alike with them and have similar perspectives so that kind of emerging is going on all the time and i can see that a group of consciousness may may become collective in that sense, but you see, they're still individuals. Yes, they're collective, but they're still individuals. So, you know, it it would be a matter of semantics, whether you call that one mind or just many, many individual minds who are all very good friends, you know, who are all working cooperatively together. You know, well, what's the difference? There may not be a difference. So many minds working cooperatively together may have the same may have the same um, characteristics, the same look and feel, the same results as you know, many minds merged together. I think it's just a matter of language. So as you as as this group of people and you know the, the channeled the channeled group uh, describes themselves as a as a merged entity. It, we may not uh, necessarily interpret that to be literal. It may be figurative in the sense as they work together, they cooperate, and they are so cooperative that they anticipate each other's needs and wants and where each other is going, and they all contribute. And it's just like one thing, you know, like a team, right? A team, a really good team, acts as a single unit. Everybody in that team knows their job, knows their part, and what part they play in it. And nobody has to tell them when to do what, they just do it. And uh, you could say that that team is a single thing. It's made up of individuals. And I suspect this is like that. So it's not so much you're giving up any free will as you are connecting with others and sharing. And perhaps, indeed, that may be the, you know, what I was talking about earlier when I said we are going to evolve to be a one family, to be one entity, if you will, but it'll be made up of billions of individuals, all with free will. But if it's cooperative and sharing, then we will act in many ways just like a team. We will act like one entity. So we're not going to be like the cells that were single cells, and then they were multi-celled critters, and then they were multi-celled critters with cell differentiation and so on. Well, there you have all the cells that are cooperating, kind of fused together shoulder to shoulder, you know, all part of this physical organism. Well, we, as we grow up, aren't going to be fused shoulder to shoulder with all the other people into one organism, because that's not the way humans do it. We humans are going to be individuals with individual personalities and individual paths. And we will have our our own diversity, but we may work together, play together, connect with each other in a way that we also act as a single entity, just like a team does. We will be team humanity, and uh, there will be lots of room for everyone to exercise their own interests and their own free will and still be part of the collective. That's a hard thing for people to imagine, because when we imagine being part of a collective, we imagine being given an assignment. Here's your job. You're part of the collective. You know, Go do this. And that's not the way it is at all. It's not that. That's what happens if you're fear based and everybody wants to make sure they get theirs. But in a truly, in a team, you don't have that sort of thing. Team members aren't just here. This is your job. Team members have to earn that job. You know, if you're part of a very tight team, it's because that's your expertise and that's what you're good at. And that's what you enjoy doing. And you and the team make a whole thing that really works better than any of you could do by yourself, that's what makes a good team. So we as humanity could become that kind of an organism that would seem like we could tell other people in our mental states as we travel around through the larger consciousness system and interact that we're team humanity. You know, we, uh, we all used to be in the same virtual reality and now we're one, uh, one mind, but individuals still. And uh, maybe that'll be the case someday, you see. So it kind of depends on how you look at it. I'd say, yes, they were were one, but they really were individuals who were cooperative and uh, caring and able to fill in each other's unuttered sentences, if you will, because they were close and only wanted to help and be a part of the solution. So they don't give anything up. It's not that you give something up by being a member of a team. Actually, you get something from it because you and the team can do more, can expand more, can go into and accomplish more than you ever could individually. And so it's not a it's not a, a a jail or boundary when you join a team. It actually stretches the boundary and gives you more experience and more choices, not less. So that's, a, that's a thing that people worry about, you know, less choice. You're going to do in this, I'll be part of a thing and I'll just be a cog. I'll be a cog wheel and a bigger machine, you know, I'll lose my individuality and it just you know won't be the same anymore. And that doesn't happen with humans. That doesn't happen at our level of consciousness. We will always be our individuals on our individual path, I believe. But we will be cooperative and we may look like to the outside world that we're a one big entity but we're really a bunch of individuals with free will, exercising that free will in the way that pleases us most.
0: Okay. I was going to see if Torsten had anything else to say, but I think he's good. He's got his answer. Um, Tom, uh, Foward says that uh, for as long as he can remember, he's wanted to be the greatest rock star on planet Earth. Good, good, good goal. Um, And he wanted to write the song that would actually change everything for the better. But then he realized Mm -hmm his job was a much bigger one than he thought. He wants to become the greatest rock star outside of this PMR, writing the most beautiful melody that could be listened to by all and everything within the largest consciousness system. So with that in mind, is there something like musical melody in the out-of-body experiences world? Is there a need for music in the NPMR?
2: Well, interesting question. Now, this is going to, uh, to get into what's the definition of music and what is music really, because obviously sound waves and sound waves, uh, vibrating eardrums that produce electrical signals in brains that affect, you know, the limitations on a consciousness, that's a physical process and hearing, um, you know, music is a, is a uh, physical process. And when you go someplace where you don't hear, you don't really have ears, then hearing music becomes problematical. But I think that's because we have a very narrow definition of music, that music is acoustic waves of a certain sort, of a certain pattern, that that would be music. But if we take our definition of music to a, a higher level where music is a we say a medium for creating mood and thoughts and feelings and understandings. That it's a it's just a medium for doing that. Okay, now we've now we've reduced it kind of to the feeling level, to what it gives us at the at the core level, at the being level. What is what is music to us not by hearing, not at the physical level, but at the being level what's that's in part there and if we take that then yes indeed there are things like that in the larger consciousness system but it's not music in the sense of we hear sound and we hear notes and there's tonal scales and there's atonal scales and there's high C and there's you know E flat and there's all of this and it makes up music uh, it's that's kind of a physical process that has to do with sound waves and frequencies and things that are just just here In this physical reality. But if you're talking about emotional states and affecting feelings, then yes, there are things that are very feeling centered. Sometimes they're visual, which makes it sound like now we're talking about painting or the visual arts uh, as opposed to music. Here, those things are separated by our, you know, the, the visual arts, the literature, written arts. Music, you know, the hearing, so our senses, we probably even have the smelling arts, you know, there's aromatherapy, right, aromatherapy, you know, maybe that'd be the smelling arts, you know, each of our, each of our um, senses can be manipulated in ways that causes us to have feelings, to have certain ideas and thoughts and makes us feel good or feel bad. So massage, you know, that would be a kinesthetic art, right, to, uh, to be done. Well, if you take all these art forms and say, well, that's all physical, it has to do with our physical senses, but take all of those together and what's similar about them, what's similar is the feeling connection, what it does to us, what we get out of it, the states it puts us in, that still exists. And it may exist for us, if we say, let's go out of body. Now, in an out-of-body state, you can see things and be moved by them. You can hear things and be moved by them. Right? You can feel things and be affected by them. But you're interpreting data as sense information. You're interpreting that data in terms of sound, in terms of vision, in terms of feeling, because you live in this virtual reality and that's how you interpret data in terms of senses because that's how you have learned to interpret data so that's just how you do so that's why when you're out of body you may hear the angel singing you may hear you know other things going on you may hear voices somebody may talk to you and give you information but that hearing is just your interpretation of the information you interpret it as as words or sounds it's doesn't mean that there was really sound there. It's just data you interpret that way. So now in the larger consciousness system, if you have no experience in a physical reality where you had senses, or if the senses are different than they are here, then you would interpret things very differently. So yes, you can hear sounds in the non-physical, but that's because you're interpreting in terms of your experience with sound. If you'd never had an experience with sound, you wouldn't interpret them as sound. You wouldn't hear the symphony. You would hear or you would feel something else. You may get the same feeling. You may get the same being level whatever the same massage or the same you know, visual or something. You may get something like that 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 means something to you but it wouldn't be in terms of our senses, in terms of art or music or massage or you know Aromatherapy or anything like that. So, yes, there's meaningful things in the non-physical. It's data we interpret it. So, at a, at a very basic sense of meaningfulness, exchange, meaningful exchanges, I'd say yes, there is art and music there. But if you if you mean interpreted as we it here in this physical reality. That's only if you've been in this physical reality where you can make that interpretation. If you have not, then you get it in a different way, but you can still get it.
0: Right. So, Tom, would it be fair to say that other entities who are in NPMR or other realities can have access to music by bands like the Beatles, and how would they actually interpret it themselves? What would they get? I mean, it would be different for everyone, right?
2: Yeah, everything. So there are many entities who have never been in a physical reality. All entities, all individual units of consciousness are not engaged in these virtual reality entropy reduction trainers. Some are, some are not. Some have been in various trainers and haven't been back for a while, but, you know, it's not everybody. I've run into any number of entities who have no experience whatsoever being in virtual reality like this one. I mean, they're in virtual realities, but they're in ones with very loose rule sets, not ones that you know, have sound waves and, and uh, you know, sight like we have here with this tight rule set. And it, explaining music to them would be very <laughs> difficult. And them explaining to you how they felt, you know, about things would be very difficult because you just don't have the same experience base. It's very hard to exchange information with people who don't have the same experience base. You can exchange feelings, you can exchange um, kind of what does it mean to me? But you can't exchange the actual experience. You can't exchange what the experience means. So n- music in another form. So yeah, other entities that have never uh, been in this kind of a virtual reality with a tight rule set with acoustic waves and you know photons and all that kind of stuff that comes out of our rule set, you wouldn't be able to explain to them just what that was. But that doesn't mean that they don't have an inner life of meaning and significance and that they have things that uh, excite them and make them happy and things that don't, you know. It just means that they don't experience it the same way that we do.
0: All right. You know, Tom, talking about experience – um forward also said that if he has no obe out of body or lucid dreaming experience in this physical matter reality is there any way to check on the level of the body's conscious state while trying to go out of body
2: is there any way to check on the conscious level yeah the the
0: body's the body's conscious state i mean what's happening to your body what what it's doing and is it safe and everything
2: oh if you're going to check on your body on your physical state
0: your, your body's conscious state yeah so whether it's still there it's breathing and everything is good I, i'm guessing is, is what he's asking
2: okay if if you're out of body is there a way to check on it yeah oh okay i get that um well yes yes and no uh, generally if you're out of body and you've given up your data stream then you don't notice. You don't notice there is a body, you don't know if it's breathing, you don't know anything about it, it's just gone. It's like it's not in, the, it's not in your reality anymore. Um, if that worries you, then you have a problem with a fear. You need a problem with uncertainty, and you probably <laughs> need to get over those, but you can solve that problem by parallel processing. If you like, you can leave five or 10% of yourself back with the body, you know, uh, counting your breaths or, uh, you know, listening for sounds or something else that uh, lets you know that you're still there. And the other 90% of you can go be doing something else. The only downside of that is that, one, it takes a little more practice to do that. And two, you're not 100% invested in the reality that you're exploring. You're only 90% invested in it, so you're not quite as focused there as you would be otherwise. But you can do that. But the best thing to do would just get rid of the fear and uh, not really care about that body. That body's in some other reality frame, it's gotta take care of itself. And you know that if something happened to that body, let's say somebody comes in and throws a bucket of ice water on that body while you're out of body. Never fear, you will be back in a flash. You know, in, in uh, tenths of a second, you will be wide awake back in this reality again. So if your house catches on fire or somebody comes in and slams the door or your dog barks or, you know, the ceiling cracks and falls in, you will be aware of it uh, just as quickly as you would be had you just been taking a nap. You know, you'll, you'll wake up and get back in it instantly. So you really don't have to worry about the body taking care of itself. If something disturbs it, it will come back. Which is why they always tell you to go to the bathroom first before you go out of body because otherwise your bladder will bring you back. You know, so any, anything uh, like that will, will bring you back here. So the thing to do is you just forget it. Forget the body. The body's on automatic. It will just go do whatever it does. If it has an emergency, it will tell me and I will come back. You know, it will jerk me back, actually. So um, that's because your explorations in the non-physical basically have to be, you know, have to be in terms of your free will awareness unit, which is only aware of things that the body can be aware of. So you're kind of attached through that body. That's your whole world. You know, nothing other than your experience. You have no experience, no intellectual experience at all, except through this avatar. So when you go to other reality frames, it's all in terms of your experience which is in terms of this avatar that's why we hear things and see things out of body when we don't have ears and don't have eyes because we're interpreting data that way because our whole world has to be interpreted in terms of our avatar so when that avatar suddenly gets cold water thrown on it we get that too we get that uh you know we get that same Sensation. The consciousness is immediately aware of it because that's its whole reality framework is, is basically the avatars framework. So you won't get lost and your body won't just quit because you're not there. That was the very first question. You know, when, when you leave the body, it's not like the body's going to die because you're no longer there to keep the, you know, the heart going and the lungs pumping. It just does whatever it does. It's just your consciousness is gone. Your body is a, is a virtual body. Virtually bodies run all by themselves. Nobody has to worry about the elf not breathing. You know, it just uh, persists. And so will your body just persists, as fine. And if it needs to come back, it will.
0: Right. I know you had said that at the beginning of the chat, Tom. I just wanted to get some clarification and bring that point up again. Okay. William uh, writes uh, a question about debugging code MPMR style. You have mentioned in several previous interviews that early in your career, you started developing the ability to efficiently debug code while in an altered or meditative state, which allowed you to quickly pinpoint the troublemakers. With today's traditional software projects weighing down at least several hundred thousand lines of code, I could see this being a very useful skill indeed. Would you mind going into a little bit more detail of your processes and share some practical tips for us poor individuals still stuck with log files and (laughs) breakpoints?
2: Yes. Well, you have to have a way of, of uh, recognizing various lines of code, you know, because if you look at a line of code and you can't recognize it, knowing that there's something wrong with it won't help you. If you don't know where it is in the, you know, in the, in the hundred thousand lines, if you have no idea where that line is, well, I guess you could look for that line, but still that gives you a hundred thousand lines to look at in order to find it. So first you have to, I was familiar with the code, not by, I was doing this back in the day when uh, code was written on punch cards and put in long cardboard boxes. And I had about four or five boxes worth of cards. Each box I think was, I don't remember how many cards it was. I don't remember 2,000 cards or something like that in the box and I had like four boxes. So um, you know, I had maybe 8,000 lines of code. So that's kind of small compared to these days, but that was huge in that day. But um, anyhow, I knew every line of code because I had written every line of code. Every line of code had been typed on a card punch and then verified and so on. So I knew what every line was in there and exactly where it was in that, in those 8,000 cards, I could very quickly find that card with that line on it. Um, just because I was that familiar with it. I was a graduate student and I, you know, I lived and breathed. You know, that uh, that code that was my that was my research was all tied up in that in the software. So what I did, my method was to basically scroll through the lines of code, just like I was looking at a at a printout and I would see the lines of code go by and I could start anywhere I wanted to because I was that familiar with the code. So I wanted to start at the beginning. I could start right at the beginning. I just scroll through it. And it would be just like I was scrolling on a, on, a, uh, on a printout that would just run by almost like you can now put your little uh, thumb wheel on your mouse and you just scroll down on your, uh, you know, on your screen and you just kind of see stuff as it goes by. Well, I could scroll it about as fast as I could recognize the lines and know what they were. And I had an intent that the code that had a problem would be in red. All the other code lines would be black, like black ink on white, but I would get red ink if there was a problem in it. So I'd start scrolling through it at a point where I thought, well, it's probably in this section. Well, I'd start at the beginning of that section and start to scroll through it. And I knew what what all the lines were and I'd see one that was red and I'd go up and I'd stop it and I'd back up a little bit and I'd look at that a little closer and identify exactly what it was. And then I could uh, remember that and then speed it back up. So I could let it go pretty fast. Just like if you were scrolling on your computer screen, looking for a, in, in text, looking for a, uh, a line in your text that was red. Well, you wouldn't have to read all the lines. You could scroll pretty fast because that red line would catch your attention. And then you could stop scrolling and you could go back and look at it uh, uh, more precisely, which is what I did. So I kind of scrolled through it at a fairly good pace. And, uh, slow enough that I would notice it when a red line went by, and when one did, I'd go look at it, and I'd say, oh, it's that one, it's the one that does such and such and such, and what's wrong with it? And then instead of a red line, I'd get a, maybe a red comma, or a red semicolon at the end of the line, and maybe it would flash a little bit, and I'd say, oh, I forgot to put the semicolon at the end of the line, which tells the computer that this is the end of that statement, and that's the, code I was writing, and that was code nobody's probably even heard of today, called ALGOL. But um, in any case, it needed semicolons at the end of the line, I believe, a long time ago. So that was my thing. Now, you could do it any way you like. You have to be familiar enough with your code, though, that you can recognize where you are in the code and know what's in each one of those statements. So if you and 10 other people are writing uh, these, you know, two or 300,000 lines of code, that's going to be pretty tough. What you'd have to do is you could find the red line. You could scroll through it and say, oh, there's a red line. But now you'd have to be able to identify that red line so you could go find it and fix it. Your ability to identify that, um, maybe you could come up with some kind of code something that would uh maybe be the you know the last name of the programmer that did it and the uh you know and something else that you could get to come up you know i did just red i just used a color because i knew all the lines but you may need some other code that would let you know just where that was in that in the whole program so that you could then find it i don't know how you would do that it'd depend on how your code was structured whether you could somehow um, Let the system tell you, you know, kind of an axi, a string of axi characters that would then allow you to locate the line. That's your own code you'd have to come up with. but That would work. The more complicated it is, the more difficult it is to keep it clear. Just having something red or or black is pretty simple, so it's easy to keep clear. Getting an axi string of characters that define, you know, where it is in 300,000 lines of code could be pretty complicated and maybe a lot more difficult.
0: Okay, thanks, Tom. I can see the time is running short, so I'm gonna move on to this next one. There's two parts, I'm hoping we're gonna get through the whole thing. Uh, Radagast on the MBT, the MBT forum writes um, about discovering we live in a virtual reality. He says, obviously, this is a very good virtual reality. The ignorant ones who don't know of magnetism, gravity, or say quantum particles, are pretty much always and forever gonna assume that this is a physical matter reality yeah we've developed technology that has let us observe action at a distance and the immaterial nature of particles so was it ultimately meant for us to discover that this is a kind of virtual reality or rather is it assumed certainly by the larger consciousness system as a high possibility that whatever being should evolve here would eventually logically come to the the inevitable conclusion that we are living in a virtual reality and if so how does such a conclusion change the effectiveness of this virtual reality as a consciousness trainer
2: Okay. Um, you know, I thought about that too, you know, as I, as I, as I uh, pondered some years ago, the double slit experiment, I thought, well, one of two things, either uh, this was expected that we would come across this and do this experiment and realize that this was not a objective physical reality. And uh, then uh, later uh, realize that it was a, a computed virtual reality. That was a kind of a set there for us to discover. And, uh, you know, one day we would be to the point where we would be grown up enough to do that experiment. And then we'd say, aha, it's a virtual reality. And that'd be a big hint because the logical consequence of a virtual reality is that love is the answer. You know, and if you've read the books or heard me talk, you know, that's a logical sequence to get from one to the other. So once you know it's a virtual reality, getting to the point that our point here is to grow up, and become love is just a logical process. So once you get the first one, you eventually will end up at the second one. And that would be a good thing for the system to leave, for us to trip over that would lead us in that right direction. So I thought, well, is the system being clever or was the system just not necessarily um, paying attention? And there was this glitch left in it that we just stumbled over, which was called the double slit experiment that we could show to ourselves that you know, it wasn't physical, and uh, after some thought, I decided that it was probably on purpose. You know, it's just part of the part of the way things work. If you evolve to a certain level of sophistication, then you're ready to deal with and process the you know the implications of what it is you you can do. So it's kind of a pointer. It's like if you're clever enough to be able to do the double slit experiment and see that. Uh, particles aren't really particles that they're probability distributions then you're clever enough to see the bigger picture that uh, this reality is not really physical and then you're clever enough to see the bigger picture that it's virtual and ask why who's running the virtual reality you know where where is the virtual reality being uh, hosted and that leads you to why are we here, to what's the point, point? and that ends up with love is the answer, you see, when you finally get there. So I think it was probably one of those things that we were meant to come across, we were meant to uh, get, and so far, um, you know, we have successfully looked at those experiments, looked at action at a distance, decided we don't wanna go there, stuck our head in the sand and decided to just go on. You know that's kind of what we've done as a as a as a race. Anyway, we've just ignored it. It's been around almost a hundred years now, and a hundred years later, probably ninety nine percent of the populations never heard of uh, of the double slit experiment or never questioned action at a distance. You know, it's only just a very tiny tiny percent that a hundred years later even knows that such experiments have been done. So. Uh, <laughs> We're a little on the slow side. We don't, uh, you know, we don't uh, grasp these 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 uh, paradigm shifts too gracefully. We tend to cling to our beliefs and whatever. But eventually, you know, the word will get around, and and uh, people will get a bigger picture. And eventually, that understanding will lead to love is the answer. So I think this is the system set set us up when you're smart enough to do these experiments, you're smart enough to deal with, with the, uh, you know, with the logic that leads you to love is the answer. And, you know, reality is bigger than just as physical. So I think it's on purpose that we've been left to, to trip over this, uh, this problem. <laughs> and if we spend a couple of hundred years with our heads in the sand, trying to ignore it, well, that's just, you know, it's the way it is. Evolution is a long-term process. It, it's not a quick process.
0: Right. Um, I know that this question was kind of posted on the forum, and it started a, a rather big discussion. And there was a comment that was the, there was a follow-up that had a somewhat related question. I don't think you've answered the question, so I'm going to read it out, Tom. Let me know if you think we have answered it. Um, sure. They write, if we posit that things have gotten better across human history, may we phrase it that as the interactions between IUOCs and this PMR have become less entropic over time, would it be so to say that it 's happened because either a or b and a is have we developed social institutions such as laws, political processes, technology, etiquettes, norms, information resources, etc, that so, so the incarnating IUOCs behave better so i e their actions are either more constrained than in, in the past or that the feedback they get for behaving badly is more rapidly delivered and assimilated, or b that the branch of IUOC that has incarnated here on earth in this PMR has remained at least at its core constant so that over time, these RUOCs have learned their lesson and are in fact now of higher quality, less entropic as when, or than when biological life first began here.
2: Okay. Well, it's some of, it's some of both. Um, You have to, you know, good behavior um, needs to be the result Of quality being. So first you need to, you need that good behavior to be coming not from acting but from the fact that we are better beings and that better being higher quality consciousness comes from growing up. So we have better behavior because we grow up. Now that doesn't mean that everybody who has better behavior has grown up because if enough people do then you can, everybody can get together and say well you know it'd be better if we have laws. You know, and it would be better if we take the law breakers and remove them from breaking the law or at least try to restrain them and so on. So we we get those things because we see that it's better to act civilly with each other than it is for us just to, you know, basically law to jungle rip off, you know, anybody you can get away with. So. It shows our growing up. But that doesn't mean that we've had a constant set of IULCs that haven't changed, and that they in general are growing up. It just means that we, as a as a whole, we humanity, with our um, you know our shared mind space, there's a certain amount of, of humanity that uh, um, you know, as Jung put it, as a human archetypes a certain amount of learning that we've gone that just kind of goes with the species now. It's it's become part of our own hardwiring, part of who we are. Um, What do we we call it? The uh, collective consciousness of humanity. We have evolved. We've gotten better. Doesn't mean that new entities haven't been coming in. It's just that the ones coming in have been growing up quicker because they've gotten uh, into an environment that helps them grow up quicker. So we're, we are progressing, even though we have new people coming in, and a sign of that progression is the institutions that we've created that have made this a kinder, gentler place. And most of that has been probably in the last several hundred years, you know, five hundred years, even you can say the last thousand years, you know, it starts slow and builds gradually. Hard to say where it begins, you know. It, uh, that uh, it grows, those kinds of advancements begin to accelerate. So if we only look at the last 300 years, we can see a great change in the kind of environment that we live in. It has gotten a lot kinder. It has gotten a lot gentler. It has gotten a lot more supportive. And that's because we have grown up. Yes, we human species on an average have a higher quality of consciousness now than we did Um, you know, a long time ago. Good for us. It's taken us a long time to get there. You know, it's very slow. But we are making this progress and our institutions show that. But you also can look around at all the greed and hate and dysfunction and fear and belief and ego that's loose in the world. And you can say, we have got a long, long way to go, but it's still better than it was. So uh, it's not a matter of the institutions force us to act better. That's probably true, but that's not the point. We have actually grown up and evolved some. That's why we have the institutions. And the institutions do help many of us act better. And sometimes acting better is the first step toward being better. Because you get a con, you get a, a contrast between what acting better gives you and what acting worse gives you, and what the results are, the logical consequences are of those things. So it's it's some of both, Keith. That uh, it's not just a or b, it's a and, and b. Right. But the but the acting better, but the idea that we have institutions that force us to act better, that is a result of our growing up and being better even though everybody necessarily hasn't grown up, but there's been enough growing in our collective consciousness to have these institutions and for them to have spread, uh, you know, a long way around the world, not everywhere, but a lot of places. But we're still in that process, but yes, it does work and we are evolving. And the neat thing about it is that evolution is a slow, slow process, but it's, speeds up as it goes, it's an accelerating process. So our, particularly social evolution, like what we're doing, the social evolution, not physical evolution. So social evolution can take millions of years to take one baby step. And then you take, you know, over the next you know, 10,000 years, you take 10 more baby steps. And then over the next thousand years, you take a hundred more baby steps. And so on, you know, and over the last couple of years, we've taken a couple of big steps. So it gets faster and faster, because the more you grow up, the easier it is to grow up more. The bigger picture you have, the more choices you have, the bigger your reality, the more likely you'll make better choices. You see, it all just builds on itself. So we're to the point now that, uh, that's why this other question that uh, that uh, uh, Syveta asked, you know, why now? Well, now we've been evolving for a long, long time. We're to the point that it's starting to speed up. We're starting to get the tools and the, and the know-how and the understanding and the drive to grow up, get rid of all this, this fear and greed and, and nastiness and ego. We see how dysfunctional it is. You see, you go back a thousand years and nobody saw how dysfunctional it was. That's just the way it was. You couldn't even define it as dysfunctional because nobody had ever heard or thought of anything that was functional. It's just the way it always was. Now we can see it as being dysfunctional. See, that's a big step forward. You know, That's part of the process. Like we were talking about before, you know, where you, you know you should act nice, but you don't. You know, and you can see that that means you're in a learning process. Well, here we are. Now we finally got to the point that we can say, wow, look at all of this abuse and everybody trying to rip everybody else off and, you know, whatever you can get away with. That's not good. Well, that means we're making progress because at least we know that's not good. We don't say, well, that's just the way it is. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. We look at it and say, that's not good and it needs to change. That's progress. So we are growing, we are growing up, it just takes a while to get it from our intellect down into our being level. So what we do as a species in a society is the same thing we're doing as an individual. We're going through the same, you know, the same growing pains, the same kind of learning thing. We see that, well, we know it should be this way, but it's not really that way. And we're really not that way, but we know we should be. And that's kind of where we are culturally with our uh, institutions. Well, we know the law should be better, and we know it's the justice is not very evenly applied, and we know that there's really a different legal system for wealthy people and poor people, and uh, we know all these things aren't aren't fair and not the way they should be. But you know that's just the way it is, and we kind of accept it and live with it. So that's changing. It's just now it has the potential to change more rapidly than it has in the past. The acceleration is picking up. So. I'm very hopeful that we are at the very beginning of a, of, a, of a wave of change that will go faster. We'll make more progress in the next 50 years than we've made in the last thousand. So I think that's very encouraging.
0: Yes, it certainly is. Um, well, we're, we're making progress in – we've got five minutes left. I'm going to go for one last question, Tom. Um okay. I know there's no such thing as a short answer, so I'm just going to go for it and we're going to see how we do. Um, William writes, uh, here we go. I recently came across an interesting definition of introversion and extroversion, where being on the introvert side of the spectrum means that you are being with people, drains your energy, and you need some alone time to recharge your batteries, whereas being on the extrovert side means exactly the opposite, i.e. you recharge your batteries when surrounded by people. Uh, This person writes that as someone who is more on the introvert side, they can identify with the definitions above. Uh, So what are the mechanics at play here, Tom, that make one feel drained or re-energized? Is introversion, extroversion a property of the IUOC, or does it belong more to the PMR avatar rule set?
2: It is more a function of the IUOC. It's the way we express ourselves, we as consciousness, how we express ourselves when we have to deal with the things that are out there in our environment, with our world. You know, how do we interact with that world? So it's a, it's more of an attribute of us as consciousness, and not just a, a, a limitation of our avatar and our, and our uh, rule set. All right. Well, that that description of introverted people, uh, you know. Or get drained around lots of people and extroverted people get energy and introverted people get energy when they're alone and introspective and so on I've heard that too and that's a you know that's one way that's one metaphor to use there's other metaphors we could use that would be just as good for instance we could say that um, uh, introverted people were more self-contained um, that they validate themselves that um, they, uh, they'd rather listen than talk. And then we would say that extroverted people uh, need to share in order co- to connect. They uh, have to validate themselves through others, and they'd rather talk than listen. So that's another set of metaphors we could, we could use. It depends on where you are in how you relate to things, how you uh, connect to people, how you you know interact, what you're comfortable with, and you will go through different different stages. Um, some, a lot of people will be introverted in this situation and extroverted in that situation. Many introverts in a crowd of people they don't know who say very little and just listen will be very talkative and very extroverted in a crowd of people they do know well. So it's not so much a given trait that is just that way everywhere as it is, it's a style with which you interact with with other people. It may have something to do sometimes with how self-assured you are, with how insecure you are, with uh, how, you know, interested you are in the things these other people are interested in or how disinterested you are in the things these other so there's a lot of things that come into it so it's not really a fixed thing and we make it a fixed thing but say no he's an introvert he's an extrovert and we kind of make these pigeonholes and we come up with these little metaphors but don't take them too seriously take them very loosely and there was another part to the question i believe right
0: sorry Tom yes. yes there is yeah the second part was um as you grow the quality of the consciousness do you naturally tend to become more balanced the word is ambivert or is this simply a trait that is part of your npmr makeup from birth something you keep from experience one experience packet to the next
2: no it's not uh, that you keep it from one experience packet to the next it just depends on how you learn to relate to other people and uh, a lot of it is uh, experience packet dependent, not really IUOC dependent. We might say it's it's more um, uh, free will awareness unit dependent than it is IUOC dependent, individuated unit of consciousness dependent. But uh, yes, as you grow up, you tend to not become one or the other. You intend to become both when when either one of them is more profitable than the other. So if you are in a situation where listening and just kind of feeling the sense of what's going on is the most profitable thing to do, then that's the way you are. You're quiet and uh, unassertive. If, on the other hand, you're in a situation where you have information that really would be helpful to share, and you think it would be very beneficial to people to share it, then you're right out there, assertive, and you're explaining, you explaining, and you're interacting with people. So I think as you grow up, you you kind of get to be both in the situation that you know when it calls for it. So you may be, uh, you know, some of each given the situation, and be very comfortable in both, very comfortable standing up in a group and and uh, explaining your thoughts to people and sharing and very comfortable being by yourself listening or just uh you know watching the trees grow you know having uh alone time or, or contemplative time so i think it's it's everybody probably can be both in various times it's just that when you grow up you tend to to get rid of your insecurities and get rid of your fears. And without the fears, there are sometimes we're contemplative and quiet is good. And sometimes we're standing up and you know uh, being extroverted is good. And you're free to do both. If you're driven to each one, if you're insecure and therefore you need to be quiet, or you're insecure therefore you need to get out and make a you know make a show and uh, and talk a lot and you know. It's the same thing. You know, you're being driven from insecurity either way. It just depends on your style of how you deal with it. So once all that goes away with the fear, then you're kind of free to be however it works in whatever context. You're free to spend hours sitting alone in the woods contemplating and free to get in with a crowd of people and laugh and tell jokes and and be, uh, you know, a part of that as well. So I don't think you become one or the other with experience, and nor do you just become an ambivert. Well, maybe that is an ambivert. You don't become something in between. You just apply each one separately where where it's called for.
0: Right. Well, thanks, Tong. Um, we've run out of time once again. So uh, apologies to those of you whose questions we didn't get around to. Uh, thank you all for being here. It's great to see a full room today. Um, I want to close with a comment from Bill who joined us today from Northern Ireland. He wrote me a note here that says, Keith, I'm currently implementing Tom's advice for a happy family life, as well as for most other things, i.e. relationships with my children, my wife, and it's a wonderful mindset to be in and it works like a charm. So will you thank him for us, please? You know, I think I'd speak for all of us, Tom, where, whether joining us here today or watching this later on, when we say thank you as always for your time, your patience, answering our questions, and of course most importantly your wisdom Tom thank you very much Uh, it's been a lot of fun again today
2: well you're quite welcome it has been a lot of fun today I've enjoyed it we had some really good questions and uh yeah it's really hard to ask Tom Campbell a a question to which you get a short answer I know (laughs) the the short answers don't happen very often but uh, I think the questions were really good and uh I'm glad that uh, many of you out there, and that's not just the people here, but the people, the, the thousands who will watch it. I'm really uh, pleased that uh, many of you are getting it and internalizing it and getting it at the being level and growing up and your life is getting better and more functional and so on. That's the whole point. And uh, if I'm somehow helpful in that, in that, uh, uh process of you growing yourself up it's not me it's you making the choices to grow yourself up if i can be some sort of a catalyst in that process i am just delighted that's why i'm here that's why i spend the time that's why i wrote the books so uh, thank you for letting me know that that, uh, that's good